I want to thank you for your patience today. This is a long day, and you've been very patient. And it's not over yet. So I hope you're patient enough not to get up and leave in the middle of this one. <laughs> but thank you for the invitation, and thank you for your patience. And, and uh, you've certainly set forth a challenging day, uh, both for me and for yourselves. This may be, for me, the most challenging lesson. And I say that with a little hesitation because I think talking about the promise of the Holy Spirit and trying to walk through all the things that we talked about, I, th I, think, I think those are challenging things. They were challenging things for me to study. Uh, I hope I put them away uh, 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 in a way that is, uh, uh, able, was easy for you to understand and, and that you could at least see the connections that I, that I was making. And I hope they're helpful when you're thinking about the Holy Spirit. On the other hand, there's been quite a bit of controversy on the question of the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I don't have any hopes that when I'm done, I will so have emphatically described it that everyone will just say, yeah, that's right, and <laughs> there we go. But I do hope I make you think and think carefully through it. And I do have conclusions. And I'm not hesitant about the conclusions, but that doesn't mean I know everything or that there's not anything to be discussed. So please feel free to dis discuss as you go. But I do want to say times are changing. And I mean by that, I mean historically times are changing. There's been a drastic paradigm shift on this subject, the gift of the Holy Spirit in the past 60 or 70 years, since the mid-1940s. And there's a major shift in the last 53 years since about 1968. And I'm sure you don't want to be bored with me giving you all the historical notes and significance about that. So if you want to discuss that later, I'm just, I'm just going to say for now, trust me, this is true. What was a, a believed and accepted and preached and taught by, by brethren before the 1940s and particularly since about 1968 is what I'm going to teach today. But there's been a vast shift in the paradigm in, in these years. There's some questions that I want to raise as we start. And, I'll, and that's just what I'll start with, some, some questions I want us to think about. Has the consciousness of the richness and the power of the Holy Spirit been neglected in our comprehension of living as Christians? In other words, have we been void of an understanding and use and recognition of what the Holy Spirit does? Some, I'm afraid, are much like the people of Ephesus in the first century who upon being asked if they had received the Holy Spirit, you remember what their answer was? We've not even heard that there's the Holy Spirit. They didn't know anything about it. One author opined that the indwelling Spirit is frozen and unused asset. And another brother said, we have retired the Holy Spirit in the first century and forgotten about him. And I think, brethren, and I'm sorry to say this, but I think that has largely been true among people. 
how we approach this important subject will really have a direct effect upon our view of both prayer and providence. Is God acting, intervening? Is he a personal God? Does he act and intervene in personal affairs? Shall we pray for God to heal our loved ones? Will he intervene? Or will our prayers be a mere expression of wishful thinking? That's what Sigmund Freud said prayers were. Just a mere expression of wishful thinking. Can we ask God to be with a preacher as he proclaims the word? I've heard that already two or three times. Can we do that? Can we expect God to help the preacher in any sense whatsoever except as he remembers the word? Shall a Christian pray that God will direct him and give him wisdom in the face of a difficult situation? And making a difficult decision. Man, after all, James says, if any lack wisdom, let him ask of God. What, what do we mean by that? What does he mean by that? Can such a man confidently believe that God is helping him make the right choice? But by what authority might we pray or continue to pray, help us walk even as Jesus walked? I'm not picking in any prayer that's been offered here today or yesterday. But in those prayers were elements of things where we have expressed some ability of God to interact in our lives. And I commend you for that, by the way. Can we pray that God would lead us from temptation? Does 1 Corinthians 10, 13 have any relevance to our prayers? When a Christian is tempted, is God's spirit there? Is God personally and actually there at all? And although sometimes we believe in God and even want to serve Him, we often see God as an impersonal and a, a spectator, so to speak, in the affairs of the world. He is there, but He's only there as an observer. And He's no longer an active participant in, in His creation. And whether we like to hear that or not, brethren, that's the conclusion you would have to come to by some of the teaching that we hear. Do we completely strip the supernatural and play into the hands of the enemy when we deny the working of God today? And I just might raise this question. How can we, how can anything be connected to God and be wholly natural. I mean, after all, is God supernatural? The gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 2, verse 38. Peter says, And you will receive the gift of the Holy, of the Holy Spirit. On the day of Pentecost, Jesus poured out the Spirit of God on all flesh. And that was what's prophesied by Joel. That's what's reiterated in, Joel, or in Acts 2, 16 and 17. And it's proclaimed by Peter in, in uh, verse 33, chapter 2. 
you're going to notice there's some repetition, some reiteration of things. I don't know how to avoid that, so we're just going to, we're just going to do that. In his sermon, Peter, Peter offered hope to this now guilt-stricken audience, and he presents an avenue to them for the remission of sins. Shows them how. And he promised the gift of the Holy Spirit, provided they repent and were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. What is the gift of the Holy Spirit? Is the gift of the Holy Spirit is the gift the Holy Spirit Himself? As in the gift of land, in where the, the, the land is the gift. Is the gift something from the Holy Spirit? As in the gift of Dave Brewer, in which I'm the giver of the gift. It'd be nice if we could just make a grammatical argument and settle the matter. But that doesn't seem to be entirely possible. That doesn't mean we shouldn't work through it and think about it. I want you to know I'm not in any way pretending to be any kind of Greek scholar. Everything that, I, uh, that I'm going to say, I trust others to be right about. And you're going to say they don't always agree. But that still doesn't mean we can't work through some things. So but let's just do kind of a quick overview of grammatical arguments. And so I'm told by those who are considered scholars and experts that the grammatical construction allows for either meaning. The Holy Spirit is the gift, or the Holy Spirit is the giver of the gift. So now we have a dilemma. Those who favor the Holy Spirit is the gift assert that the clause is epexegetical genitive of the thing given. You don't have to know all that. But that's what they claim. The Holy Spirit itself. The gift being the Spirit received as a gift. And they tell me that that is appositional. <laughs> and a, a large number of Greek lexicographers make that argument. A very large number of them. All right. And the genitive is appositional. As in Acts 2.33, the promise is the Holy Spirit. So here the gift is the Holy Spirit, is what they say. And it's of the Holy Spirit. The clause in it is an appositional genitive with the gift and means the gift, namely the Holy Spirit. And, and we could quote, and, and actually we have quoted from a, a, a variety already, but they quote, quote people such as Arnon Gingrich, Thayer, Vine, Linsky, and even Kistemaker. So that the Holy Spirit is the gift in Acts 2 to 30 is, and by the way, it doesn't make the argument, and I may go back to that a little bit later, but the overwhelming consensus of Greek scholars is that the gift is the Holy Spirit. And I've checked over a hundred of them. Those who favored the Holy Spirit as the giver of the gift, whatever it is or whatever it becomes, we're not really defining that yet. They say the phrase can easily be objective genitive or subjective genitive instead of appositional genitive. 
whatever that means to those who are scholars. And we may have several in the audience, but I'm just not one of them. So, for instance, the gift of John Brown. John Brown is the giver of the gift. And the gift of God, God is the giver of the gift. And they cite, by the way, John 4 and verse 10 quite often. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked, and he would have given you living water. And they say, See, this, is, this, this shows that. Um, by the way, if I'm right about John 4, verse 10 being a discussion of water and the Spirit, as in John 7, that argument goes out the window. All right? And they, they quote men like Franklin Puckett. Both views claim that the meaning must be determined from the text, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> the text in the context. So, one side doesn't have an advantage over the other on that. Uh, for instance, uh, uh, C. E. Allen Turner said, one must attempt to understand the use of this phrase by the context in which it's found. We would agree with that, wouldn't we? Franklin Puckett, who takes the exact opposite view, says the meaning must be determined on the basis of doctrinal truth rather than grammatical form. He's saying essentially the same thing. So let's look at some contextual considerations of, of, of the, the Holy Spirit as the gift. And, and looking at the immediate context, Jesus spoke of the Spirit to his apostles as the promise of the Father. We've looked at Acts 1, 4, and 5. Do we need to look at that again? Or we, we've already looked at that maybe four times. So um, grab it, look at it, and <coughs> excuse me, keep it in mind. Remember, he said, wait for the promise of the Father. And he said, you will be baptized uh, in the Holy Spirit not many days hence. Peter affirms in Acts 11 that that's what happened. All right. Peter spoke of the outpouring of the Spirit as the promise of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2, verse 30, 33. So here we find that, you know, an immediate textual consideration and what we find is just having mentioned that the gift of the Holy Spirit, Peter says, the promise is to you, verses 38 and 39. Well, what promise was Peter referring to in Acts 2.39? The immediate context suggests that the promise already mentioned is, and just offered is the gift that he's talking about. And the promised Holy Spirit who has been poured out is now available as a gift to those who obey. So I see that as the immediate context. What we might call the remote context, Acts 5 verse 32 says, the Spirit was given to those who obey God. And, and, and we might call that a gift, whom God hath given to them that obey Him. Now I know there's some discussion about exactly all who are included in Acts 5.32, but at least you would admit that the principle was set forth in Acts 5 and verse 32 whom God hath given to them that obey him. The same phrase, the gift of the Holy Spirit, is used elsewhere in the scriptures when it clearly means the Holy Spirit himself as the gift. So this is not the only passage that we have. We have to, we have to rely 100% on this passage. We've got other passages that, that would help us out. 
where, where the gift received was the Holy Spirit. Look in Acts chapter 10. Look in verse, beginning in verse 44. While Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Spirit fell on them all that heard the word, and they of the circumcision that was believed were amazed, as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Spirit. For they heard him them speak with tongues and magnified God, and then answered Peter, Can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit? as well as we. Now, I just raise a question here for you to think about. We find this in Acts 10. And I just asked the question, in Acts 2, did the apostles receive the Holy Spirit? But we have here the same phrases as in Acts 2.38. Therefore, that the gift of the Holy Spirit can be the Spirit itself. It doesn't necessarily answer our question from, from verse uh, 38 of Acts 2, but it does show us that at least it can be used in, the, in that way. And it's demonstrated by a comparison of Acts 10.45 with 10.47. And in both places, it must be understood as the equivalent to the Holy Spirit as a gift, even though we must... I think, to be fair, acknowledge that the respective context reveals that different measures of the Spirit are under consideration in Acts 2 and, and in Acts 10. The context clearly indicates that the Holy Spirit himself is the gift being given. And some might object uh, that Acts 10.45 in context seems to be referring to the baptism with the Holy Spirit, a measure of the Spirit that the Bible seems to make clear is not promised in, to every believer, at least in this, in this way. But let me ask you, just because Cornelius and his household received the baptismal measure uh, or manifestation of the Holy Spirit, that should not cloud the fact that the same Greek phrase is found in Acts 10.45, in Acts 2.38. And is referring to the Holy Spirit as the gift. And as I began to speak, Peter says, the Holy Spirit fell on them as upon us in the beginning. And so we see this same Greek phrase in Acts 2.38, and it seems reasonable that we should at least understand it to mean the same thing that in this instance it is the Holy Spirit himself that is the gift being given. I, I see your wheels turning, and that's good to think about. The gift of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2.38 is the Holy Spirit himself in a non-miraculous measure, meaning that there are no miraculous gifts that are bestowed upon those who receive it. And we might call that, and some call it, or maybe a lack of a better term, the ordinary measure. I don't know if you can have an ordinary measure, so I'm hesitant to use that, that term, but you understand it to be making a difference between the miraculous manifestation and no miraculous manifestation in those that receive it. The gift of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2.38 is the Holy Spirit himself in a non-miraculous measure, no gifts, are bestowed upon the recipients. There is no evidence, that, at least that I can see, 
for the idea that every repentant, obedient, baptized believer received an endowment of miraculous gifts, but there's a lot of evidence to the contrary to that. Okay. And I need to make a point about that. Dozens of men, in fact, hundreds of men who believe the gift is the Holy Spirit are careful to disavow any miraculous manifestations. There are sometimes those who say that is a necessary conclusion, but it evidently is not because literally hundreds of men who've written on this subject and draw that conclusion say there's no miraculous manifestation because the gift is the Holy Spirit in, in Acts 2 verse 38. So that brings us to, if I'm on the right chart yet, what I've called important doctrinal distinctions. First of all, the gift of the Holy Spirit is different from the gifts of the Spirit. All right? And I think we must, and, and I, you know, I, I actually got this quote from a man named Richard Long, Longenecker uh, in the Expositor's Bible Dictionary, whatever that or commentary means, but I, I think he expresses it well. He says, We must distinguish the gift of the Spirit from the gifts of the Spirit. The gift of the Spirit is the Spirit Himself, bestowed by the Father through the Messiah. The gifts of the Spirit or spiritual gifts, are those spiritual facilities uh, which the Spirit imparts, dividing each one severally as he will, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 12 and 11. And we need to distinguish between the gift of the Holy Spirit, and, uh, and I've left that quote, by the way, and, and we need to distinguish between the gift of the Holy Spirit and what Paul called the gifts, 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 1, 14 and verse 1, of that selfsame Spirit. The gift is the Spirit Himself. And while the gift of those uh, spiritual while the gifts are those spiritual abilities, the Spirit gives uh, variously to believers for the common good, just as He determines, again, 1 uh, Corinthians 12 and 1 and verse 11. The gift as related. Oh, by the way, Paul said there are diversities of gifts. You, you may have one and not have the other. Uh, and, and, and the basis of that is charisma. The gifts as related to the subject or question of the indwelling uh, of the Holy Spirit, though, there's uh, James Bales, for instance, uh, opined. He said, since the gift of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2.38 is promised to all believing penitents who are baptized into Christ, and since the Spirit dwells in all Christians, this is the gift of the Spirit that was promised in Acts 2.38. I think that's a good quote, All right? Um, he goes on to say, this indwelling is not accompanied by mirac miraculous manifestations, but by moral and spiritual fruit. Somebody mentioned that concept just a little bit ago. Um, and so, you know, passages like Galatians 5, and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is joy and peace and long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And <clears throat> I, I want to make this comment. If you, I don't know if you're familiar at all with any of the writings of, of James Bales. Bales did a lot of writing about the Holy Spirit 
and the charismatic movement. So he, he, he was, a lot of what he was doing uh, was in opposition to false things carried by what we call the Pentecostal or, or charismatic movement. And in particular, he was uh, trying to help a friend of his, which you may or may not have heard of. If you're older, you might have. If you're younger, you may not have. But there was an entertainer singer by the name of Pat Boone who started out among Churches of Christ and was carried away into a Pentecostal charismatic movement by, by his uh, wife and, and her family. And Bales was a personal friend of, of uh, Pat Boone. And so he was trying to uh, rescue him from his apostasy. So a lot of his writings was about that. And the, and the reason I mention that is for those who assume that because he believes the gift of the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit itself, he must, he must conclude that, uh, that he believed in, in the miraculous. He was writing in exact opposition to that and still understanding that the gift of the Holy Spirit was the Holy Spirit himself. And uh, Bale's further work, he says, the gift of the Holy Spirit, or is the Holy Spirit himself, and he goes on to say, then it likely refers to the indwelling of the Spirit. And I admit to you, I'm going to make that connection eventually. And thus we have a blessing enjoyed by all Christians as part of their covenant relationship with Christ. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, for instance, Or know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit which is in you, which you have from God, and you are not your own. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 9 through 11, he says, You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, and so be that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. He goes on to say, But if the Spirit that raised up Jesus from the dead dwelleth in you, etc., etc. Here's what happens sometimes when we're talking about this subject. And I don't want to denigrate anybody at all, but I do want to pull out what happens sometimes. So I, I, I truly try to be careful and not malign anybody in this, but at, at the same time, talk about why there's sometimes a problem. Many who oppose the idea of the gift being the Holy Spirit and take the view that the Holy Spirit is the giver of the gift also believe that they are defending against error. And you can't help but admire that sentiment, whether we get it right or not. Okay. They say that Peter refers to the gift of salvation as being that which is given by the Spirit. And some very prominent people have written about that and carried that idea. And, and this is perhaps the most common explanation against that I hear. All right. Often they oppose any concept of any literal or actual indwelling of the Holy Spirit, even going to the point of saying it's, impossible. it's an impossibility. And often believe that the Spirit's indwelling is entirely mediated and often expressed by the phrase only through the Word. And most, in my experience, believe that it is necessary to hold these positions uh, to effectively warn against potential dangers of the literal indwelling proponents. In essence, many believe that we are kind of sleeping with the enemy, our, our Pentecostal friends. And believe it provides a strong case against certain perceived doctrinal errors. And some of these are, are better thought out and, and better expressed on that, 
than others, while some of them, you know, kind of border on the ridiculous. So I'm interested to hear a thought-out, reasoned explanation that says that we should take this position, but sometimes it is a reactionary position, okay? Let me give you, for instance, of that. Like I said, some are well thought out and some maybe not so well thought out. Some have invented a list of reasons why those who believe in an actual indwelling do so. One man said, for instance, in a lesson and a a syllabus, he said they are lonely, especially as they get older, and desire to come to believe in a closer relationship with deity than God has promised. Others insist that we who accept as true and actual indwelling must believe in miraculous manifestations, divine personal guidance, you know, like finding a parking place, and that was one of the things that came up back in the early 70s. People said, uh, you know, the, the Spirit dwells in me, and when I need to find a parking place in downtown Pittsburgh, there it is. God created it for me. Or, or there must be an observable physical manifestation of the indwelling Spirit. As one man said, a halo or maybe an HS stamped on your forehead or something like that. And you can see, brethren, these kind of arguments are not profitable to a discussion. And some have even gone as far to say um, they believe that we are, that we believe, if we believe in the indwelling spirit, that we are divinely inspired. It doesn't take anyone very long to observe me to know, even though I believe in the indwelling spirit, that I'm not divinely inspired. And I have no misconception of that either. But that's because, brethren, I have no scriptural basis for that conclusion. What is the gift of the Holy Spirit? Well, I'm convinced that the gift is the Holy Spirit himself. And I'm persuaded by the immediate and the remote context that, in which the phrase is found that that's, that's the case. I believe that the Holy Spirit is given to those who become the children of God. Now, there's a lot of passages that talk about the Spirit being in us and God having given us the Spirit. Galatians 4, verse 6, and we're not going to try to exhaust those either. But because you are sons, God sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And I believe, in as far as it applies to us today, it is the Holy Spirit promised as a gift and directly related to the indwelling Spirit. And again, I refer back, and and we'll talk a lot more about this tomorrow, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit which is in you? And you are not your own. You're, you know, you're of God. You're not your own. There, your body is sanctified for a purpose. It's set apart or consecrated for a purpose, and the purpose is to be the dwelling place of God. That's a pretty serious thing for us to consider and, and to think about. And I'll tell you, brethren, although I can't hold it as conclusive, there's something to be said about the overwhelming consensus of Greek scholars that state the gift is, uh, the gift of the Holy Spirit uh, 
is the Holy Spirit himself. Now, I told you earlier in the lesson that, uh, that I've, I've looked at references of over 100 scholars on this, and, and I, I, didn't actually, I didn't write it all down as I went. And I have to admit that a lot of it is just from memory of over many years of study. But if I were to guesstimate how many of these scholars said the gift is the Spirit instead of the gift given by the Spirit, I would put it somewhere in the 97 or 98 percentile. Now, again, that doesn't, that doesn't prove it, but what it does say to us that their consensus in considering the phrase itself and other passages lead them to conclude the gift is the Holy Spirit. And then I'll add to that. I spent about two years uh, in, in all the time that I could find away from other studies in researching the articles and sermons of brethren both present and past, m many of them before 1968. Okay, And I was able to find and document over 500 brethren in Christ who took both the position the gift is the Spirit and the indwelling of the Spirit in our bodies. Again, that doesn't prove anything except I'm not the odd fish out of water. <laughs> There's a basis for us to, to have the conclusions that we have. So take that for whatever it's worth. The doctrine of the Holy Spirit being the who that is given is not limited to Acts 2.38 or Acts 10.45. There are a lot of passages, and, and we've looked at quite a few of them. We're, we're not going to read each one of them again, but I just want to kind of re remind you, John, John 7, 37, you know, Acts 5, uh, I have those written out on the charts for you, but you're pretty familiar with them. Romans 8, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1, 2 Timothy uh, you know, 1, verse 14. By the way, I'll read that because we haven't used that one. He, he said, <clears throat> um, I'll, I'll back up to 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 8. Uh, he says, Therefore, he that rejecteth, uh, he that rejecteth, rejecteth not man but God, who has given his Holy Spirit to you. Second uh, Timothy 1 verse 14, that good thing which was committed to thee, speaking to Timothy, guard through the Holy Spirit which dwelleth in us. Amen. Okay. Um, John 3, 1 John 3.24, John says, He that keepeth the commandment abideth in him, and he in him, and hereby we know that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he gave us. Kind of a confirmation. 1 John 4, 13, Hereby we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He hath given us of His Spirit. So in affirming that the Holy Spirit dwells within the child of God, one need not suggest some things. I don't know if I have a chart on this. I do. So let me try to get down to it. In affirming that the Holy Spirit dwells within the child of God, one need not suggest these things or come to these conclusions. And that is that indwelt Christians can expect to perform miracles. They cannot. 
that the Holy Spirit guides or illuminates us in some way apart from the Scriptures. They are not. That He operates in some direct way in the saint's heart against His free will and contrary to the Scriptures. He does not. That such indwelling makes one an incarnate equivalent to Jesus Christ. I have to admit to you, when somebody accuses me of that, first I'm disappointed, and then I'm offended, and then I realize they do not understand either incarnation or the indwelling or either one. Or that the indwelt person will be divinely inspired. These are all accusations that have been made against brethren who believe in the indwelling and none of them. They're all fallacious statements. None of them are true. JFK had a quote. It's not related at all <laughs> to, to uh, uh, anything to do with the indwelling, but his quote makes a point, so I'm going to use it. He said, too often we hold fast to the cliches. We subject all the facts to a prefabricated set of interpretations. We enjoy the comfort of opinion without the discomfort of thought. (laughs) And what we've hoped to do in these lessons is to make us have the discomfort of thought. Let us think about these things. Let's look at them. The gift of the Holy Spirit actually serves more than than, than a single purpose. It's more than just saying an indwelling. That's not all there is to it. And I appreciate your point, Grady, when you said earlier, there's more to it sometimes than we, we give credit to, not, not particularly to the indwelling, but to the understanding of the, of the use of the Spirit. And, and that's, that's what I'm trying to say as well. The gift of the Holy Spirit has other benefits to it that, that we have. At, you know, after we believe, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Ephesians 1 verse 13. And we're sealed, uh, it seals us, and He gave us the Spirit as an earnest of our inheritance. There, there is a, a spiritually tangible purpose behind the thing that is being done and given. The Holy Spirit is the earnest of our inheritance. It's, it's the down payment. It's the guarantee. I know we sometimes think that's oversimplified, but when we... When we uh, you know, when we go buy a car, you, you ever go to look at a car and you're talking to the, the dealer and you say, I think I like this car. He says, give me $100 down. You know why he wants that? Because it's your guarantee you will come back and take that car. God is saying, I give you of my spirit and it's my guarantee you are my saved person. It's, it's sort of the down payment on eternal life. Second Corinthians 5, verse 5, he says, now, that, now he that wrought us for this very thing is God, who gave us, unto us the earnest of the Spirit. And by the way, this is the discussion of the mortal awaiting the immortal. That's what he's talking about there. There are residual benefits to acknowledging the indwelling presence of God in our lives. The, comf- the, the confident life in that the Spirit aids our infirmities. The Christian, you know, frequently has um, challenges, 
spiritual challenges, physical challenges. Uh, we have deep spiritual needs. Do we deny that? Where do we get our help? Romans 8, 26 says, the Spirit also helps us our infirmity. We don't know how to pray as we ought, but he said the Spirit himself makes intercession for us. How does he do all that? I don't know, but I, I'll tell you this much, brethren. I rely on that. Uh, there are literally times I say to God, I don't know the answer. I don't know how to approach you. I don't know what's needed. I want the Holy Spirit to take care of that. I, I don't get in the light. I don't get some kind of message on the wall or I don't, you know, nothing lights up for that. I trust that, that what Paul says here, he did by inspiration. He knew about it. And however God works that out with the Holy Spirit, that's fine with me. I, I don't need to know the answers to all that. But that's a benefit. And someone might say, well, and we may talk about this a little bit more tomorrow. But somebody says, well, you, you, don't have, you don't have to have location of the Holy Spirit in you for him to accomplish that. And you know what I'd say to that? I'll give you that. But then you're probably almost as obligated to give me that. There's no reason not to either. The Spirit as a gift is a great incentive for us to live holy lives. I mean, if we literally see the Spirit being given to us to indwell us, and we are the literal temple of God, what does that say about our need to be holy? To keep our lives clean and pure. To resist sin because God will not dwell in a defied, defiled temple. We get, do we not get that example from the Old Testament when it was defiled? God said, I'm not there anymore. And I won't be there. And this is, this is superior to the Old Testament imagery of those things. That's why we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, flee fornication. Why? Because your body does not belong to you. It is the temple of God. It's the temple of the Holy Spirit. And this knowledge helps us to pursue holy, holiness. I'll tell you what, my belief in that has made a big difference in my life about how serious I am about trying to be holy before God. And I think that's the incentive, or at least one of the incentives, to our understanding the gift being the Holy Spirit itself. And what we're told in Hebrews 12, verse 14, without holiness, none shall see the Lord. I have that on my Bible. I want to be reminded of that when I pick my Bible up. Without holiness, none shall see the Lord. Why? God's Spirit dwells within us. His presence is within us. Thank you so much for your very good attention, for being here, putting up with the long lessons, and a lot, a lot of information. I really appreciate it. The lesson's yours.